So this evening I'd like to talk about uh, supporting and deepening uh, daily life practice. And I'd first like to invite you just to reflect individually, just for a minute or two. How might you best bring what you've learned here, what you've explored here, into your daily life more fully? How might you best bring what you've learned here into your daily life more fully? And I'd I'd like to suggest not think of a lot of things, but just think of the one or two most important things. If you had to consider the one or two, maybe three, most important uh, responses that you have to that question, just check in inside. And this is just for yourself. I'm not going to even ask, ask any uh, responses out loud. It's just for yourself. How might you best bring what you've learned here into your daily life? Just the, the one or two fundamental responses. So in some ways, it's quite challenging to bring the qualities of mindfulness and loving kindness and wisdom and compassion uh, fully into our daily lives. Uh, In some ways, the culture seems to be, uh, in many ways, not always, but in many ways set up for different intentions. Sometimes it seems set up to encourage distraction. Have you noticed? (laughs) And, uh, you know, some people sometimes have radio or TV on all the time. And there there are many ways that we're, there's just, we're bombarded by information and by news and by uh, the internet. And you can, in some ways, we have access to more information than humans have ever had before. And we're kind of guinea pigs, you know, where there, there's a lot happening now, a lot changing. And in some ways, we are encouraged not to pay attention. We're encouraged to just go with the stimulus that's the loudest or the most recent or whatever. And it's also challenging uh, because the culture, in many ways, is a very, we might say, mental culture. It's a, And it's seems to be with the computers and the internet in many ways getting uh, that way quickly, or, or how shall we say, accelerating in that direction quickly. And it's, it can be uh, challenging really to just be present with uh, ourselves, with our lives, or is that pressure that Marianne was talking about, uh, the pressure to speak quickly, to act quickly. Everything gets accelerated. Everything's very, uh, can be very, very uh, speedy. There's a lot of thinking. There's an Asian teacher uh, who named uh, Buddha Dasa, who, whom I met in Thailand, who was once asked, what do you think about Western culture? Invitation to broad generalizations. <laughs> but uh, it, it kind of reminded me, because uh, Gandhi was once asked, what do you think of Western civilization? He said, it would be a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And so 
And so Buddha Dasa, Buddha Dasa, when asked what he thought about Western culture, he said, lost in thought. Yeah. And it's not all negative, but it's, there, there are ways that it goes against a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the intentions of our mindfulness practice, of our metta practice, there are also ways in which we may not even feel so much support. We may go back, we may feel isolated. There may be, uh, uh, we may be just trying to kind of do it on our own and it may be hard to keep the mindfulness going or to keep the practice going or we know how much support there is here when, you know, when I as an individual, you know, it's 2.30 and the bell rings, and I'm, even though, if if I was on my own, I might um, continue with another hour of nap, or I might, whatever, you know, I might uh, just read a magazine, and here, partly because we we know we're on retreat, and that's why we came for, but also it's seeing the others, you know, where there's a kind of support by the, the whole system to maybe do things that would be quite a bit harder if we tried to follow the schedule at home. Probably most of us uh, tried to follow the schedule at home. So we also don't have that much support. Even in the Bay Area, it can feel, you know, which compared to, like when I lived in Kentucky, I was quite a bit less than here. And maybe some of you live in places where you feel like there's less support. But even in the Bay Area, it can feel sometimes, because it's also faster here, you know, things are and faster moving, can feel like, like I don't have the support I would really like. You know? And um, there's also a way in which uh, we just get very speedy and very busy, and often we get overworked, you know? and it's very hard just to find the time to meditate. There's a powerful passage from, uh, from Thomas Merton where he says, he says this, and this was written actually in 1960, before a lot of computers, he said, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. This frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. It's a strong statement. 1960, very prescient. Where's that from? What? Where's that from? What book? Um, let's see. I forget it. I actually quoted it in my book where I have the complete textual reference. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you look at my book and look up Merton in the index, you will get there quickly. <laughs> Uh, but it's powerful, isn't it? It's really, uh, how many people resonated with that? Yeah, most of us. It's very strong, very strong. And that was 1960. And so we may, we may feel like there's the retreat and there's everyday life and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> we may feel that some, maybe not right now, but sometimes it's hard. And there's, there's a cartoon that I found which shows, uh, this is a cartoon I don't actually know very well, but some of you may know, called Frank and Ernest. And it shows Frank and Ernest uh, looking at uh, two signs at a crossroads. And one sign says, Highway of Life, and it's pointing to the right. And to the left, the sign pointing to the left says, Path of Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Seem to be going in, other, in different directions. And there is, um, even at the end of the retreat, you can feel probably the mind getting busier, you know, doing this, doing that. What do I got to do? What, I, what am I going to say? You know, if not, uh, a lot of things. And there's a very, uh, very sweet poem, in a way, that was written by a retreatant here named Kelly O'Connor, who wrote this uh, poem at the end of a retreat about five years ago. And this is called Ten Days at Spirit Rock. And I think this was written in the, uh, you know, it was a retreat in the, the rainy time here, you know, in, in the winter. Ten days at Spirit Rock, rain, giant oak crashing to the creek, rain, giant turkeys pecking the ground, rain, chocolate chip cookie melting in my mouth, sunshine, 
Pack bags, load car, write check, call babysitter, pick up Dylan, buy food, rent video, cook dinner, do laundry, take down tree, do dishes, schedule next retreat, and take responsibility for my suffering. <laughs> Maybe I'll post this. <laughs> It's yeah. in your performance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Because uh, the way he wrote it, it's also the last part is speed. Other, other words, there, there's spaces between the lines. It's luxurious. And then pack bags, load car, etc. Schedule an extra retreat. Help! <laughs> and take responsibility for my suffering. So... There's a lot there, you know, and so this, this challenge of making our daily lives be a support and even a place to deepen our practice is a real challenge. And in, in Asia, uh, lay people were often taken to be kind of, not always, but often, to be not really doing the real spiritual work, that, pe- that the monks and the nuns were sometimes seen, and certainly in Theravada countries, that's where the real action is.
break the mirror? How do you let go of habits, move out of habits? Just the daily sitting can do that. You know, you're, we're going along in a certain way. The sitting itself helps us to notice the habits and to release them. You know, going to something like metta can also, in a way, shift from the old habits. Doing something like a Sabbath day creates a, a boundary where we kind of come back to ourselves uh, every week. We, in a way, break the mirror. We, we shift from the usual way of doing things. We, uh, again, uh, going on retreats, knowing that you'll go on retreat, going into the wilderness. Sometimes travel can do this as well. In, in the Middle Ages, they had the festival of Carnival, in which one actually uh, deliberately went out of your mind for a day, <laughs> out of your usual mind for a day. To, so, so some of you know, in those uh, festivals, sometimes uh, poor people dressed up as the king or queen, and the king or queen went as ordinary people, and there was a whole different way of doing things. So it's to ask, what's going to help me uh, look at things freshly? Finding ways to do that periodically is crucial for making daily life practice uh, really alive. A second way, really, of, uh, that is tremendously helpful that I haven't mentioned is having a guide or a mentor or a teacher. That as we work with the cultivation of mindfulness and metta, it can become really crucial to have uh, someone who can give feedback, give some guidance, have some perspective on where one is. And so sometimes it could be actually someone who takes the role of a teacher. Sometimes it could actually be a peer, you know, or a group of peers who could somehow work in that way. You know, I know that uh, with a Buddhist Peace Fellowship, we formed a group called the Base Program, uh, which I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned, but it, we, it was a, a group of people that I, I was the mentor for. And it was a group of people who were connecting social service and social change work with meditation. And we formed the group so that after the six months of the training period, it would become a peer group. And I just I stayed with the group more as a peer. And it met for another three years, just on its own, outside of the normal structure. And in that group, I would say there was a lot of guidance that was given to people on a more peer basis. But the key is having some kind of, um, some kind of guidance that brings in wisdom. And of course, it often is helpful to have someone who is further down the path than you or, or knows more about the territory you're, you're exploring. You know, for some, it might be to explore uh, have a mentor who's more of a meditation teacher. For others, it could be someone who helps one with psychological material, who works with some of the different parts of oneself. For others, it could be someone who really gives guidance in the work situation, you know, and ideally someone who could bring the, these all together. And I wanted to read one poem uh, by uh, Francisco Albanez, which is uh, really a poem about ultimately, as we do this practice more and more, guess what? we become our own teachers. We become our own mentors. There's, there's a way that what we're cultivating in this practice is increasingly the ability to be, to have one's own wisdom get stronger and stronger. And for myself as a teacher, a mark of my success is that I'm no longer needed, that I become obsolescent, so to speak. <laughs> You know what I'm saying, that the, there's, a, there's a way that, as a teacher, my work will be done by getting rid of my role as soon as possible, so to speak. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think you get my point. And, and so this is, a, this is a poem by Francisco Albanez called The One Who Is at Home about this sense of being one's own teacher. Each day I long so much to see the true teacher, And each time at dusk when I open the cabin door and empty the teapot, I think I know where he is, west of us in the forest. Or perhaps I am the one who is out in the night, the forest sand wet under my feet, moonlight shining on the sides of the birch trees, 
the sea far off gleaming, and he is the one who is at home. He sits in my chair calmly. He reads and prays all night. He loves to feel his own body around him. He does not leave his house. It's a sweet and subtle poem about the way that we eventually become our own teacher. The third area that's been very important to me is expressed uh, in a line that I, that I received from, uh, from John Travis, who's been really my main mentor over the last years. And we'll be actually teaching together here in December in the main hall. And one day we were talking and I was saying, well, you know, the people in Asia, they have so much support and we don't have that much support. And he was talking about how, yeah, the, you know, someone who is a Tibetan Lama who might be in a monastery, there's just total support all the time. And so I was, I was, I think I was kind of complaining (laughs) and saying, it's hard. (laughs) And, and he said, let your body be your monastery. Let your body be your monastery. In other words, they would have a monastery and there's always this support. And he was encouraging me to use awareness of my body as the monastery that was always around. And when I heard that, it electrified me, actually. In a way, something clicked and I said, yes, that's something really important for this culture for a lot of reasons, partly because we're a more mental culture, but partly because that ability to be aware of the body is always, is always a possibility. If we're busy, if we're speaking, we can always stay grounded. And that's been really a crucial support for me, to, to have that sense of being present to the body. Keeping that body awareness throughout the day, and it's not easy, as, as probably most of you know. It's not easy to stay in the body. Given the culture, given our conditioning, it takes some further training really to bring awareness. But it's something that I really encourage you to explore, to support. You can support it by doing uh, walking meditation, by just being with the body in the mindfulness practice, by doing practices like yoga and so forth in which there is mindfulness of the body just really, really crucial to, to stay with the body. I think I'll read a poem that some of you may know by Mary Oliver, which is a poem about the body. It's one of my favorites. It's called Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes. Over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Through the body, knowing that that sense of connection. And the last last quality or the last way of deepening daily life practice that I want to mention, I like to call practicing the alchemist craft. I'll tell you what I mean by that. (laughs) It has to do really with taking difficulties as opportunities. There's a line in one of the Tibetan teachings which goes like this. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. Turn all obstacles into the path of practice. There's a way that when we do that, practice can accelerate in a way in which we can, when something challenging arises, we can really uh, move to not so much try to get rid of it, but say, what can I learn here? Can I open to it? 
for myself, there was a t- at the time when I was actually able to be much more interested in my own suffering was a time when my practice accelerated. When instead of saying, oh my God, more suffering, get rid of it. Go to a movie, open the refrigerator, whatever. But when I could actually say, oh, suffering, I'm interested. And it takes some balance to do that. But it was actually a turning point when I could actually say, I'm really getting upset by this. What do I have to learn? Jack Kornfield says that fear, when it appears, is a sign of something important that's about to be learned. The about to may take a while. But he says, the presence of fear signifies that something important is about to be learned. And when we take that approach, which is, again, counter to our conditioning, things open up in powerful ways. And again, it takes a lot of balance. And we have to, in some sense, have that quality of balance to be able to be with our suffering. And sometimes that's not there. And I'm not saying uh, go into really, really difficult, horrible stuff when we don't feel balanced. I think there has to be that balance. But the challenge is that when there is some balance, going into the suffering can be very powerful and transforming. There is a poem that is quite amazing by, uh, by Rumi called The Question, in which he, he says this more or less, saying that when we go into the challenging or the difficult, against our first inclinations, something magical can happen. This is what Rumi says using the the language of Islam and and talking about God. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another towards the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Do you get that? (laughs) Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure and make it their devotion are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not fire. I am fountainhead, come into me and don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside. And so that uh, practice that we have of supporting our mindfulness, supporting our metta, and then deepening it is something that we can pursue in daily life. Using those supports and perhaps those entryways can, can fill it out until increasingly we don't need the supports as much the practice eventually gets more internalized in us, so we are, are um, not as much in need of those supports where we, where we, in a way, become more and more that teaching. And yet it's challenging. And I want to close just with two uh, passages. One is a really interesting passage by uh, Norman Fisher, who's a local Zen teacher. He has an organization called Everyday Zen, which is very much related to what I've been talking about. And he sends a newsletter out. And this was a newsletter from a few years ago. And it really is about a very ordinary way of having our practice, our everyday, everyday practice, be supportive. He says, first of all, I am enjoying myself quite a bit. Every day is a fresh day. I get up each morning early to sit at home. And this practice that I have done all my adult life continues to sustain me. I cannot imagine how I could continue without it. 
I also, like you, probably spend a lot of time on the phone, on the computer, on email, in stores shopping for daily items, and on the freeway traveling from place to place in the Bay Area. So this is a Zen teacher speaking. Zen teachers have to deal with emails. I am on airplanes quite a bit too, and I have my various homes away from home in Mexico, Canada, and Washington State. All this is definitely stressful and a little crazy-making, but most of it can be quite workable if I continue my practice of paying attention to my responses to things. Key, paying attention to my responses to things and of adjusting my mind when I see that it's going off. So I will stop what I am doing to breathe or exercise or look out the window once in a while just to find an even keel. Cooking or cleaning up is also a good break. So is driving the car, even on a busy freeway. I listen to the news on the radio sometimes, but not when I am feeling tired or spent or when the programs start getting repetitive. I find that my encounters with people stabilize me and make me happy. And almost all of the events, talks, retreats, and so on that I do give me pleasure and energy. Travel is also fine if I schedule it properly and relax in the middle of things. Travel also gives me a chance to read, which sustains me. So does my ongoing practice of writing poetry. I do feel that contemporary life is difficult, but it also affords a measure of freedom and potential happiness that is unprecedented. Practice helps us to realize that potential, and it is what holds us together in fellowship. It is our shared vision. So I'll end there and invite maybe just uh, 30 seconds or a minute of silence, and then we could, after I ring a bell, we could um, have some discussion. So any questions or reflections? Spontaneous poems. <laughs> Please, yeah. In the East. And, and, and you can be, you know, Greek, not a Christian, Greek discourse, but like. Okay. Just some curiosity about yeah, that. It, it, yeah. It's more, yeah, just curiosity. Your perspective. Yeah. Well, I think I won't try to talk about California Buddhism, but I can talk, maybe compare Spirit Rock to the East Coast Center, because yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there are some differences there. And, and this is just in the, you know, the particular mindfulness practice that we do here. Um, the East Coast, and this is Insight Meditation Society, and that center developed first, and it developed as a retreat center, and it was out in the country and not so close to an urban area, so there may be some qualifications to what I'm saying, but, but I'm also... Uh, aware of a lot of what happens at the uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is really a wonderful center. Some of you may have been there. And, but but in, and in comparing the offerings and the teachers probably at the two centers, I would say that the California approach integrates more, uh, probably more psychology, more psychological understanding maybe a little more emphasis on embodiment. Uh, these are gross generalizations. That's true. Actually, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. But, but without, without 
sort of defining it in my own head. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and, and also, you know, for example, and again, this is maybe partly due to me, but there's, um, you know, we have, we have a little more emphasis, certainly in the programs, on connecting with issues of justice or social engagement. So those, those are present there. And, but I would say, you know, like half the teachers at Spirit Rock are psychotherapists. You know, and I think, I don't know what the percentage is at IMS, it's probably, there may be no one actually. You know, so the, and a lot of this is due to Jack Hornfield's vision, to be, to be frank, because he's really uh, one, well, probably the main founding teacher here. And he had, he had a vision which was, having taught at the East Coast Center, was, was a little bit different. And so uh, those, are, those are some of the themes. And there's probably more, more of a, a willingness to experiment and explore and kind of try out different things. Um, probably more of an emphasis on uh, really trying to bring a variety, you know, trying to really have an emphasis on uh, diversity of many kinds, ethnic diversity, attention to uh, issues of class and age and so forth. But, but I think that's, a lot of that's true of the East Coast Center too, but there, there's, ways that it's um, expanded over the years. Yeah. Does that help, Lori? Yeah, thanks. Laura, did you, you had something, did you? Yeah, I guess I, I wondered if you could say a little bit more about coming back to the breath and doing everyday activities. Yeah. Um, I really noticed after breaking silence how things shifted inside and my breath really yeah. kind of seized up and I was kind of... Yeah in a version mode, in a bodily yeah. way. So how do you do stuff during the day and come back to the breath? Mm -hmm. Well, it, um, a, f a few things. It's really, you know, actually, um, actually I wrote, uh, for the, ori the original draft of my book, I actually wrote twice as many words as actually earned the eventual book. And one of the sections that got cut by the editor was a section I had on 60 ways to bring mindfulness into daily life. <laughs> Maybe another book, <laughs> you know. But, uh, and so there, there are a lot of ways. And, and, uh, uh, but it's not in the book. <laughs> but there are, there are a lot of things in the book there. Um, but partly it's really to find what works for you. And... You know, some things that I find really helpful uh, are just to find ways that I, can, that I can be with mindfulness during the day. And it might be, you know, just some, some little things that I do uh, most of the time is I, I just create a number of little five or ten minute breaks where I come, more or less come back to mindfulness during the day. That makes a huge difference. You know, for, so for example, it might be to... If you're walking to work, just to say, I'm going to use this for mindfulness and not for whatever I think about when I'm walking. And to have that be a regular practice. Or one that I do is after, after every lunch, when I can, I can't do it always, but most of the time, I take a five or ten minute walk. And I just say, I'm not going to think about anything deliberately. And I'm just going to keep coming back to my body and walking meditation every time I do that. There, there are a lot of other little practices, and uh, it might be when I'm at meetings, uh, I mentioned, I think, I, keep, I sometimes just sit there and keep a mindfulness log and say, I'm going to, especially when I don't have a lot of responsibilities, you can really experiment with what is it, can you be mindful and be at a meeting? It's giving some of that inner attention. And I have found over time that it's possible to have that inner attention and still pay good attention to the meeting. It takes some practice. Another thing would be to just sort of come back to if you're feeling a little stressed, to find some way just to come back and release that. Some of it might be physical, to do something like a few minutes of yoga. You know, I, I, I do think that uh, for many of us, coming back to the body is really crucial. So it could be if you, if you have a place at work where you can just go and relax for a few minutes, you know, and that may be hard with your schedule. But, but to have something like that, or something I do at meetings, quite shamelessly, is I take a lot of bathroom breaks. 
this is a very important tool <laughs> for bringing practice into daily life. And because it's socially awkward for people to say you're going to the bathroom a lot. <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually quite serious here. I'm not, I'm not saying that to be humorous. Um, that it's actually, you know, so if I'm at a meeting and I feel upset, I will go to the bathroom and I will meditate and I'll be there for a few minutes. And it's actually, but it, the, the larger point is when you find yourself off balance, see if you can do what brings you back to balance and, and have maybe a repertoire of things. Please, yeah. But, but do you come back to the breath specifically? Do you sit at the meeting and say, air going through my nostrils? Or, yeah. or do you... I, I, prim- I more work with the body, okay. with awareness of the body, but, but the breath would be just fine. Yeah. Or I, I do metta also at meetings. You know, so whatever the object is, whether it's the breath or your body or metta, it's just that knowing to come back like that. So also, also possible if you have questions just about how do I establish a daily practice or what helps. You know, just going down that list that I had at the beginning of daily practice, find a community, possibly to have a, a Sabbath period, retreats, study, and so forth. That list is really fundamental. And you know, can have a checklist with the most important probably being daily practice and community. If you have to just focus on two, those are the two I would focus on. Yeah. So if you have any questions about any of that, yeah, please, Marianne. Just a real specific um, kind of question. For the daily practice, yeah. 